0: Today's text is found in the book of Mark, chapter 7. If you've been here the past couple of Sundays, you will have noticed we uh, raised the screen. Now today we haven't raised the screen. That little experiment is over. Uh, a little too noisy. And uh, many of you won't realize this unless you watch the videos, but the the blue light does some funny things to the video and was causing some problems for For Chris in in videotaping. So we've laid that little experiment to rest. Have you found Mark chapter 7? We have some unfinished business. To be specific, the last few verses follow along as I begin reading in verse 31. Then he, that is Christ, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to them, Eph, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I, I invite you to imagine that this text is a sculpture. And so imagine... You are touring an art museum, not important where, but an art museum, and imagine you have entered a room this size, and in the middle of this room, there stands a magnificent statue. Uh, Instinctively, when we view statues, we do three things. Uh, Firstly, we, we view a statue from different angles. A statue is multidimensional, and because it's multidimensional, we have to encircle it to get a full view. What we see from one angle uh, isn't seen from another angle. And so we move around a statue, multidimensional, viewing it, looking at it from different vantage points in order to appreciate it fully. Second thing we do instinctively, I do anyway, is when I see a statue, a work of art of magnificence, I I, I draw near and I also stand back. I want to see the statue in its entirety, but I also want to get real close, up close and personal, so that I can appreciate its detail. The third thing I do instinctively is this. When I look at a statue... I view it in expectation. All good art touches the heart. Uh, All good art is visual, in the first instance, true. But all good art touches us somewhere deep within. And so think with me, use that imagination of yours, and think with me of this text as a sculpture. To appreciate it fully, we need to view it from different angles. And what we're going to do is actually look at it from five different vantage points. Secondly, to appreciate it fully, at times we need to stand back and take it all in. And at other times, we need to get real close and look at its detail. And to appreciate it fully, we have to come with expectancy. We have to come with anticipation, expecting that this text, by the Spirit of God, will elicit a response from us. So are you clear? We've got this statue. The statue is this incident, this wonderful, magnificent miracle. The Lord Jesus healing this man who is deaf. And we're going to encircle it, stopping at five different vantage points, angles. We're going to draw in, and we're going to draw out. And as we look at this statue from each vantage point, we're going to expect a response, that the statue in its magnificence, this work of art, this splendor before us, elicits something in us. So we're in this room. The statue, the the sculpture is there. We have this text, and we stop and we look at it, and the first thing we see from the first vantage point is this. We see that Christ is the Son of God. That's what we see so clearly. We see that Christ is the Son of God. Look with me at verse 35. And his ears, that is the man who was deaf, his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. What is this? This is power. To be specific, this is creational power go all the way back in your mind's eye to the beginning of this book mark chapter 1 verse 1 and there mark states it plainly that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of god and he proves it he demonstrates it how by showing putting on display christ's creational authority So Christ heals the leper. Uh, Christ heals fevers. Christ heals paralytics. Uh, Christ casts out demons. Christ calms a storm. Christ multiplies five loaves and two fish and feeds a multitude. Christ raises from the dead. All of these miracles attest to what? That Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And this is another in a long line of miracles manifesting, displaying Christ's creational authority. In actual fact, there are two miracles. This might escape our notice. Look at verse 35 again. Miracle number one. His ears were opened. His tongue was released. And so Christ restores what this man had lost He restores his hearing. But there's a second miracle here. We almost almost miss it if we read too quickly. Right at the end of verse 35, the last statement, he spoke plainly. How does this man speak words he has never heard? No speech therapy classes, folks. He does not learn to speak. He immediately speaks plainly. And so the problem, the ailment, his deafness is removed. And it is restored fully whereby this man now speaks. And we have Mark putting it on display for us, the creational power, the creational authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see clearly that he is indeed the Son of God. It's beautiful. And it elicits a response. What does it elicit from us? Fear. Uh, Dare I say reverential, reverential awe and wonder. Fear. Friends, we do not believe in the Gnostic Jesus. That he is someone, something, whom we encounter on our path to self-discovery and self-realization. We do not believe in the Gnostic Jesus. We do not believe in the therapeutic Jesus, that he is a life coach whose greatest calling is to make me happy. We do not believe in a hippie Jesus, who is some ideal, who simply invites us to hold hands and get along. We do not believe in a social Jesus. He does not lead the charge to save the whales or save the rainforest or save anything else like that. We do not believe in the political Jesus. He is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. We believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And it elicits fear. He is our creator. He is our maker. He is our king. And he is our judge. And he merits by virtue of who he is In and of himself, he merits and he elicits from us awe and wonder that expresses itself in worship. That's vantage point number one, angle number one. Christ is the Son of God. So here's this sculpture, and now we move on. We need a different vantage point. It's multidimensional. And as we move to our second vantage point, what do we see? We see this. Christ inaugurates God's kingdom. Let me repeat it. Christ inaugurates God's kingdom. Again, it's there if we care to look in verse 35. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. As I just said, this is a manifestation, a revelation of Christ's creational authority Christ's creational power signifying what? That a new creation is dawning. Now here, we're standing back from the sculpture. We're not very close. We're way back and we're trying to see it in its entirety. And to see it in its entirety, we need to understand that Scripture identifies the old creation, let's put it over here, and the new creation. At the head of the old creation stands the first Adam. He is the head of the old creation. He is the head of all his seed, the head of all his descendants, the head of all humanity. When Adam rebelled, when Adam fell, when Adam sinned, as the old poet John Milton expressed it, paradise was lost, paradise lost. And in particular, when Adam fell, his seed, his descendants, all humanity fell with him. And humanity suffered, experienced the terrible loss. Essentially, without oversimplifying, we lost three things. Number one, we lost the enjoyment of God. The enjoyment of God. Uh, you know it because I've quoted from it on, on numerous occasions. I, I really like C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I was in second grade, I think it was, when a uh, public school teacher read that to the class. And it impacted me then, and has impacted me on several occasions since. And, and there's a beautiful scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the, the children are playing at play with Aslan. Do you remember? They're frolicking, they're wrestling. They're playing in the fields. What was Lewis depicting? Lewis was depicting carefree, childlike delight. And he was depicting what we were created for. We were created to delight in God. We were created to enjoy God. When Adam fell, we lost the enjoyment of God. How else do you explain people injecting foreign substances into their veins? How else do you explain alcohol abuse and drunkenness? How else do you explain broken marriages and broken homes? How else do you explain teenage suicide? How else do you explain a society which revels in wealth and yet under the surface there is a pervading angst and cry of despair? Is because we have lost the reason for which we're created, the purpose for which we were designed, the enjoyment of God. Not only did we lose the enjoyment of God, but we lost the image of God. We were created to mirror God's holiness. We no longer mirror or reflect God's holiness. Uh, maybe you heard of this, maybe you didn't. You probably likely did. Was it three weeks ago uh, in Spain, a famous work of art from the eighteenth century did you hear of this an eighty one year old woman got her hands on it and decided she was going to restore it? Did you hear of that? decided she was going to do this restoration job on this eighteenth century painting, this portrait of the Lord Jesus, and uh, took it upon herself to restore it and It has caused a scandal ever since as uh, as art historians have labeled it the worst restoration job in the history of art and uh, it now appears, I think it was in the words of one, of one uh, journalist, that the picture, the painting, now resembles a bloated hedgehog. A portrait of the Lord Jesus, now resembling a bloated hedgehog. Friend, that's you and me. Sin has ruined us. Sin has marred us beyond all recognition. We were created in the image of God. We are created for the purpose of enjoying God. We are created with the purpose of mirroring, displaying his holiness. When Adam fell, we lost the image of God. And when Adam fell, we lost, thirdly, the life of God. We were subjected to a curse. We were subjected to death and all its attending misery. And we, by virtue of the fall, inherited what? An old creation under a curse, subjected to futility. And Adam stands as the head of that old creation. Adam stands as the head of that old humanity. But here's the good news. The Lord Jesus Christ stands as the head of the new creation. Now think of this. Remember, we're we're standing way back from this sculpture. We, We want to see it in its fullness here. The expansiveness and the glory of it. You think in terms of the temptation. And you remember that Adam, when he was tempted by the devil, was where? In the garden. The last Adam, Christ, was where? He was in the wilderness. Adam, when he was tempted, was in a place of delight and plenty. Christ was in a place of wanting and despair. Adam was surrounded by tame animals. The last Adam was surrounded by wild beasts. The devil came and he tempted the first Adam. The devil came and he tempted the last Adam. When the first Adam was tempted by the devil, he failed. And his failure resulted in the fall. And his failure resulted in the corruption of the old creation and of all humanity. But the Lord Jesus Christ. When the devil came to him and tempted him, he triumphed. And here's the wonder. His triumph over the devil results in what? A new creation. And Mark describes that temptation. And having described that temptation and Christ's triumph over the devil, Christ's triumph, victory, in, in opposition to, in contrast to Adam's failure, having triumphed the Lord Jesus immediately embarks on his ministry. And what does he start doing? He starts manifesting his what? His creational power. And he manifests that power in four specific spheres. There's no mistaking them. This first sphere is this. He demonstrates his creational power, his creational authority over diseases. All sorts of diseases, leprosy and paralysis, hemorrhages and everything else. Secondly, he demonstrates his authority over demons. You see, having triumphed over the devil in the wilderness, the devil is now bound, the Lord Jesus declares. And the Lord Jesus now plunders the devil's house. And Christ himself commands the devil's minions as he pleases. It's the second realm of authority. The third realm of authority is death. Jairus' daughter has died and the Christ comes to, to this little girl and he simply says these words, little girl, I tell you, get up. There is creational authority over the dead. And the fourth realm is the deep, twice on two separate occasions. Christ calms the storm. The effects of the fall, creation subjected to futility, In those four realms, diseases, the demonic, the dead, and the deep, representatively speaking, you have the effects of the fall and you have a description of the anguish and pain of life in the old creation. The Lord Jesus, having triumphed over the devil in the wilderness, having triumphed at the time of that temptation where the first Adam failed, he now demonstrates what? His creational authority, demonstrating what? That a new creation is dawning. A new creation is breaking through. A new creation is appearing. As we think of the Lord Jesus Christ inaugurating God's kingdom, it elicits a response, and the response is this. It elicits... So our first vantage point, Christ is the Son of God, our response, fear. Now this second vantage point, Christ inaugurating God's kingdom, the breaking forth, the breaking in of a new creation in Christ, it elicits what? It elicits hope. I've explained this before, but it is certainly worth explaining again because it, um, it, is, it is key, Christian to us getting things right, and to our Christian sojourn here on earth. The Bible speaks of how many ages? Only two. There is a present age, and there is an age to come. Two ages. You imagine a time continuum here as you look toward me, beginning on the left, extending to your right, a time continuum. The present age begins when? At creation. And that present age continues until when? Christ's. Listen carefully. Second coming. The age to come begins when? Christ's, not his second coming, first coming, and continues into eternity. Did you get that? This is pivotal, pivotal to understanding our hope as Christians. There are two ages. There is the present age. It begins at creation. It is the old creation. And it continues until Christ's second coming. There is the age to come. The dawning of the new creation breaks forth at Christ's first coming. It continues into eternity. Do you know what that means? It means, simply put, there is an overlap between what? The present age and the age to come. There is an overlap between what? The old creation and the? New creation. And so here we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we are as the people of God. We still live in the old creation. We still live under the curse. Yes, the new creation has dawned. Christ has inaugurated it. But he will only consummate it when? At his second coming, when the old creation, the present age, is finished for all time. That is key to understanding our hope, Christians. It is key to understanding that, yes, the new creation has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. Yes, God's kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. Paradise has been restored in part, but it has not yet been restored in full. And here we live, Christian. We live still under the effects of the fall. We still contract disease and we still die. And we still experience all kind of anguish in this life. But what is our hope? Our hope is as we look forward to the return of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom, the consummation of the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we echo the words of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul as he as he thought on these things and saw them in their fullness, as he could say, Look, I I I do not consider, this is Romans 8:18. I do not consider that present suffering is worth comparing to future glory. I cannot compare the two. I suffer here, yes, the effects of the fall. Yes, the old creation still with us, but this suffering cannot even be compared to what awaits us, future glory. And we live by hope. Hope is not some sort of vain imagination. Hope is a confident expectation. Hope is rooted on the promises of God and this assurance that he is faithful to fulfill all that he has promised to do. And a day is coming. It has already dawned. The kingdom has already dawned. The new creation has already dawned. But it's a fullness is yet future. And so you know what that means? Oh, it means so much. It means right now I enjoy paradise spiritually. Why? Because Paul tells me that I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Where I enjoy paradise. Right now, every spiritual blessing. And so I enjoy paradise spiritually now. In that coming day, I will enjoy paradise materially and physically. When that old creation passes forever, that that age passes for all time, and the kingdom is consummated. The new creation is consummated. And again, in the words of John Milton, paradise is restored. And see, what we have here in John 7, verse 35, is simply an inkling of this. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. It is merely a glimpse. You know, when you're up early enough in the morning and the sun begins to rise on the horizon, and you just see the first beams of the sun Over that horizon. That's what we have here in Mark, the first seven chapters. Just these first beams, the dawning of a new day, the dawning of a new age. As Christ clearly manifests his creational authority, affirming what? That he is inaugurating a new creation. But we keep moving. There's a crowd gathering in this art gallery. Got to keep moving. We come to a third vantage point, a third angle. And what do we see? We see this. Christ abounds in compassion. He abounds in compassion. Now, as we've made our way through this sculpture, around this sculpture, from that first angle, we've stood way back. From that second angle, we've stood stood even farther back. But now from this third vantage point, as, as we encircle it and make our way around, we're coming in real close, real close. We want to see this sculpture in its detail and appreciate its detail. And when we do, we see that Christ abounds in compassion. We see his compassion when the leper throws himself at his feet, pleading, have mercy on me. If you will, you can make me clean. We see his compassion when the paralytic's friends lower him, uh, the paralytic through the roof at Christ's feet, and Christ declares, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. We see his compassion when Jairus comes. My little daughter is at home sick. She's dying. We see his compassion when the woman with the hemorrhage touches the hem of his garment. And Christ declares, who touched me? Go, woman, your faith has made you well. We see his compassion when a Gentile woman comes to him. Have mercy on me, son son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed. In each of these instances, Christ is moved with compassion. Why? This is marvelous. We have the Son of God incarnate coming into contact with his creatures. The Creator coming into contact with his creatures. Creatures living under the curse. And he is moved with compassion. Understand, friend, death is not natural. You've probably heard a thousand times it is. Death is not natural. We were not created to die. We were not created to struggle with cancerous diseases. We were not created to struggle and suffer debilitating depression. We were not created to bury loved ones. We live under the pain and the anguish of the curse, the fall. And as Christ, the Creator, the Son of God, comes into contact, there is such empathy, as he comes into contact with these ones living with the effects of sin, living with the effects of Adam's fall, living under the old creation, and we see his compassion. And we see it here in this text. Draw close. Draw real close. Verses 33 and 34. Here Christ does six things with this man who is deaf. First thing he does, the outset of verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. Taking him aside from the crowd privately. Why does he do that? Is it because this man has been a public spectacle his entire life? Is it because this man has suffered with the stigma of his ailment his entire life? Is it because many have labeled him mentally deficient because of this physical ailment? Is it because he has suffered the staring and the comments and perhaps the ridicule, certainly the ostracization of those around him his entire life? And here Christ comes to him sort of points off to the side and he takes him away from the crowd private That's the second thing he does, still in verse 33. He put his fingers into his ears. That's sign language. is the Lord Jesus simply identifying this man's problem. He's acknowledging, I know what the issue is. I know what your ailment is. I know what the cause of your suffering is. And then look at the third thing he does at the end of verse 33. And after spitting... Touched his tongue. What's that all about? In ancient times, saliva was viewed as having certain healing properties. It didn't. doesn't. But uh, some in that day thought it did. I think the Lord Jesus is simply telling him, what, you've tried everything. There is no human remedy for what ails you. There is no human solution for what troubles you. There is no human answer for your pain and anguish. That's the fourth thing he does. Into verse 34. And looking up to heaven. What's he making the man do? Don't you think the man's eyes stare would have followed Christ's? That as Christ looks heavenward, the man looks heavenward. He gets it. What is the only source of his hope? From where will an answer, a remedy come? He points him heavenward. He points him Godward. And look at the next thing, still in verse 34. After he looks up to heaven, he sighed. It's not frustration. It's not impatience. What is it? It is a compassionate creator and a compassionate savior identifying with, empathizing with this man and his life under the curse. And look at the sixth thing he does. He speaks. And what does he say? Right at the end of verse 34, be open. My friends, that is compassion. Compassion. We see it all through these chapters in his dealings with creatures, living as a consequence of sin under the dire effects of the fall. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not what life was intended to be. We see a compassionate creator, a compassionate sovereign, a compassionate redeemer identifying with men and women in their pain and in their suffering. I love that stanza from that old hymn. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. But what to those who find, ah, this no tongue or pen can show, The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones. No, the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to add two additional remarks. The first is this. This is an expansive, expansive compassion. Go back to verse 31. Remember, we're up close to this sculpture. We're looking at the details. Lots of details in verse 31 that we dare not miss. This is an expansive compassion. Then he, that is Christ, returned from the region of Tyre. Where's Tyre? The land of the Gentiles. That's where he healed that Gentile woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. And he went where? Through Sidon. Where's Sidon? Still in the land of the Gentiles. To the Sea of Galilee. Into what? The region of Decapolis. Decapolis, ten cities. Where? Still in the land of... The Gentiles. This journey took months. So for months, where is Christ? Where is he? He is walking, living, breathing, ministering, preaching, and healing. Among whom? Gentiles. Who wrote this book? Mark. Where was Mark when he wrote this book? The city of Rome. For whom did Mark write this book? The Gentiles. Use your imagination. Go back 2,000 years, first century, there you are living somewhere in the Roman Empire, and you've got your hands on this parchment called the book of Mark, and you're reading it. Or perhaps you're in some assembly of these people called Christians, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and somebody is reading publicly from this book called Mark. And it's marvelous. It starts by identifying this man named Jesus Christ, who apparently is the Son of God. And it manifests his power and his ministry in this far-off land known as Galilee, Jews, a Jewish man serving among Jewish people. A Jewish man calling 12 Jewish men to follow him. A Jewish man sending out those 12 Jewish men to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Big deal. Then all of a sudden you come to chapter 7. And all of a sudden this man is, where, sorry? The land of Tyre. Doing what? Healing. A Gentile girl who is possessed by a demon. Now moving on to the land of Sidon. Where? Gentile territory. Now in Decapolis, I know where Decapolis is. They're full of Gentiles. And what is he doing? He's healing this deaf man. As you read that, what hits you, in a good way, like a ton of bricks? This compassion is expansive. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is a God who knows no ethnic boundaries. This is a God who has not come for one specific people's group. This is a God who does not bestow his favor on the basis of ethnicity. But this is a God who has come, the Son of God, the Good Shepherd, from one fold, yes, from the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and from another fold, the fold of the Gentiles, making them one, the people of God, the temple of the living God, the church of the Lamb of God. This Compassion. Is expansive. But notice secondly, this compassion is exclusive. It may seem like a contradiction, most certainly is not. This compassion is expansive, without parameters. But this compassion is exclusive. What do I mean by that? By that I mean that Christ's compassion is tempered with severity. He extends his compassion. He extends his mercy. He extends his pity to whom? The brokenhearted. He extends his compassion to the poor in spirit. He extends his compassion to those who are aware of the weightiness of their sin. He has reserves his compassion. He himself has made it clear. He has not come to call the righteous. The self-righteous. He can't do anything for them. He has come to call sinners. It is those who are sick who understand their need of a doctor. It is those who are spiritually sick and understand their sin and are under the full weight of their sin who are looking for a Savior. Christ's compassion is exclusive. It is designed and it is offered to all expansive who come in brokenness of heart and in poverty of spirit, making no claim of their own, but simply pleading like that Gentile woman earlier in the text, have mercy on me. It is an exclusive, exclusive compassion. As we enjoy the beauty of this sculpture, Christ abounds in compassion. As our first vantage point elicited fear, and our second vantage point elicited hope, This vantage point elicits faith. We hear the Lord Jesus say, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the offer. That is the offer of a compassionate sovereign. That is the offer of a compassionate creator. That is the offer of a compassionate redeemer who empathizes with his creatures as they live in the old creation under the curse, suffering with, struggling with the effects of the fall and their own sinfulness. He extends this offer of abounding compassion. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But we move on. We're encircling the sculpture. We come to a fourth angle. And from this fourth angle, what do we see? We're stepping back again. We see that Christ enables us to hear. Christ enables us to hear. Verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to them, fatha. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce the word, but it will do for us. That is, here's the translation, be open. Never forget, friend, as you read the gospel narratives, Uh, sin is to the soul what disease is to the body. And so leprosy pollutes the body. Sin pollutes the soul. Paralysis disables the body. Sin disables the soul. A deafness and blindness, they impede the body, unable to see, unable to hear. So too, sin does what to the soul? It deafens it and it blinds it. See, sin is such a part of our being that it has hold, a hold on us to such a degree that we're unable to understand spiritual truth. We're unable to perceive spiritual truth. We're unable to see spiritual truth. We're unable to hear spiritual truth. And in that state of sinfulness and utter helplessness, what is it we need? We need to hear the cry of sovereign grace, which is what? Be open. Be open. It's the same power we see at Lazarus' tomb, dead, many days, beginning to decompose perhaps already. And then we hear that cry of sovereign grace, Lazarus, come forth. Sin is to the soul, but disease is to the body. It renders us useless in God's sight. It renders us incapable, unable to do anything for ourselves. And it renders us completely dependent upon his grace and upon his mercy. Be open. And when we hear the voice of Christ for the first time, We hear two things in particular, and I dare say we hear them the rest of our lives. The first is this. We hear the crashing thunder of the law, condemned. That's what we hear. We hear the law in a fashion we've never heard it before. We hear the roaring thunder, the crashing thunder of the law condemned. We are like the Apostle Paul as he records it himself back in Romans chapter 7. At one time he was alive apart from the law. But when the law came home, what happened? Sin was revived and he died. And so at one time he had had a working knowledge of the law, but never saw himself as God really saw him, never understood what he was like or who he was in light of a true understanding of the law. But the day came when he heard Christ's voice. The day came when the Spirit of God made the law alive in the heart of Paul. And as a result, Paul, what? He died. What is that? That is poverty of spirit. That is a man who has heard the thunderclap of the law. That is a man who has gone to Mount Sinai and has come face to face with the wrath, the burning wrath of a holy God. Be open. What do we hear? We hear the crashing thunder of the law condemn. And we hear the sweet sonnet of the gospel. Justified. The sweet sonnet of the gospel. Justified we must look away from ourselves. We must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must understand that at Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ got what we deserve so that we might get what he deserves. We must understand that at Calvary's cross, Christ was made sin for us and bore God's wrath in full for us. That having come in poverty of spirit, Having come in hopelessness and helplessness, we believe and we rest in Christ alone. And Dare I say this elicits joy. It elicits joy. As I'm staring at this sculpture, this fourth vantage point, yes, I've experienced fear, I've experienced hope, I've experienced faith, now I've experienced joy and thanksgiving. And just about every day of my life, I'm reminded of that single line, that question from one of our well-known hymns that is as follows. Why was I made to hear your voice? I think about that one singular sentence all the time. Why was I made to hear your voice? And the only answer I have is God's sovereign grace. The only answer I have is the pleasure of God's goodwill because I look inward, friends, and I do not like what I see. I look backward, I look present, and even in anticipation, I look future. And I realize, in the words of the Apostle Paul, that no good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And I look to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I understand He is my only hope. And that God's grace, God's mercy, inexplicable though it may be, is the only answer to that question. Why was I made to hear your voice? Be open. There is only one reason. His good pleasure. And I move on. I'm almost completely around this this sculpture now. And we come to a fifth angle. And what do we see here? We see that Christ saves us by suffering divine retribution. Christ saves us by suffering divine retribution. Now, at times, as we've gone around the sculpture, we've stood back and we've drawn near Now we're going to draw real near, close. You're going to get closer than that, real close. Your nose is right up against this sculpture now. And you enter into verse 32, and you're not going to see it at first, but stick with me. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now all the way down to the end of verse 37, he even makes the deaf hear, and the mute speak. Now, out of that, what do I see? I see that Christ saves us by suffering divine retribution. How do I I get that out of this? Verse 32, that phrase, that expression in the English, speech impediment, one word in the original Greek. That word in the original Greek is only found in one other place, in all of Scripture, back in the book of Isaiah. Now you're saying to yourself, hold on a second, Isaiah was written in Hebrew. Uh, yes, it was. Translated in Greek, the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, it is exactly the same Greek term. Back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 4 and 5, listen to this carefully, and listen to this in the context of Mark 7. Hear this carefully. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy mark has this in view and what is he saying he's saying look folks this is happening he is opening christ is opening the eyes of the blind he is unstopping the ears of the deaf he is causing the lame man to leap like a deer and he is causing the mute to sing for joy indicating what That the new creation is breaking in. The new creation is dawning. But here's the thing. Do not miss it. As prophesied by Isaiah. There is a price attached to this new creation. Let me read it again. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Be strong. Fear not. Behold your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God. And so the dawning of the new creation is tied to the manifestation of what? Divine vengeance. But here's the good news, Christian. We are not the ones who bear this divine vengeance. It is Christ himself who suffers divine retribution, thereby inaugurating the kingdom of God, inaugurating the new creation, thereby saving others. Let me repeat it. At the cross, Christ gets what we deserve, so that we might get what he deserves. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose, so rich a crown. This elicits love. That first vantage point, fear. The second, yes, hope. The third, faith. The fourth, joy. Christ saves us now by suffering divine retribution. And it elicits love. This is a repenting love. Christian, in light of this, why, why would you want to continue on in your sin? Doesn't this break your heart? Doesn't this melt you before the Almighty? Doesn't this melt us as we stand before Calvary's cross and behold such compassion, such love poured out, the Lord Jesus suffering divine retribution for us? Oh, this is a forgiving love. When we consider his mercy toward us, when, how, when we realize how much he has forgiven us, surely it is time for us to forgive others. Surely it is time to forgive and forget what happened 17 years ago, 17 years, 146 days ago. And if I gave you enough time, you'd come up with the minute and second where you were, what you were wearing. Isn't it time to let go? Isn't it time to forgive? A forgiving love. This is a serving love. He has called us to be his disciples. He has called us to follow him. He has called us to lay our lives as burnt offerings upon the altar. And this is a crucifying love. What does this world possibly have to offer us? What could we be living for in this world that could possibly compare to the exceeding excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ? Set your minds on things above and not on things below Oh, as I see this sculpture, as I see the Lord Jesus saving me by suffering divine retribution, it elicits love. Now we've made it, right? We've made it around the sculpture in this room. And we're uh, time to move on. It's time to exit. And we're leaving through the doors. And we take one glance back, one last look. And look at what we read in verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. That's our response. As we've drawn near and stood back, as we've encircled, and as, 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 as this wonder has elicited such response from us, we top it all off with these wonderful words, He has done all things well. Now in a song of grateful praise to Christ the Lord our voice will raise. With all his saints we'll join to tell Christ Jesus has done all things well. All worlds his glorious power confess. His wisdom all his works express. But oh his love our tongues would tell. Christ Jesus has done all things well. And when on that bright day we rise. Enjoying the anthems of the skies, in heavenly songs this note, note shall swell. Christ Jesus has done all things well. Our Father, we pray this day that you would look with mercy upon us. Do not leave us to melt in the hand of our iniquities. We confess that we take hold of many things. Many are the trifles and vanities that captivate our hearts, luring us away from you. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Our Father, we confess that that is what we need, that the lost might be saved, that the wayward might be turned, the proud might be humbled, the troubled might be comforted, and the downcast might be encouraged. We need and long for a deeper awareness of your glory, a clearer sight of your majesty, a greater knowledge of your holiness. Therefore, we pray, give the blind eyes to see and give the deaf ears to hear. And we ask it in the name of Christ.